Welcome back to the Soundtrack.Academy podcast after some time off. Here's the plan for 2020. The podcast is coming back regularly. I already have some absolutely amazing guests lined up, but I'm going to slow down the release schedule a little bit. Honestly, I was really struggling to keep up with releasing a new episode every week, particularly alongside everything else I'm focusing on at the moment. So for now, I'm going to release a new episode on the last day of each month. Hopefully someday I'll be able to get it back up to a weekly release, but for now I hope one episode a month will give you all of the insight and inspiration that you need. We're actually starting off this new year with a super exciting episode. A Larger Day Paris has such a fascinating history in the film music industry, as you'll hear in the interview. From working as an assistant studio engineer to some of the biggest stars in the popular music world, to now working for Native Instruments, designing instruments geared towards film composers. But the journey to how he got there, honestly, is just absolutely fascinating. Okay, let's get into it. Hi, Elijah Day. Thank you so much for joining me again on the show. Hey, Johnny. So we've actually already done this call once, but we had technical difficulties. So uh, we'll well, I thought we weren't we going to tell anybody about that. <laughs> nah, honesty is my game. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah, can we begin then, in, in your words, with who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. My name is Olajide Paris, and I am an American composer and um, sample producer based in Berlin. I work for Native Instruments, where I design instruments for contact, specifically those that will be geared towards people like you and me, film and media composers. Amazing. So that sounds like um, a really just cool job to have. Can you tell us a little bit about your route to get there? Yeah, um, a, kind of an accident, actually. Um, I've been obsessed with sampling. Um, I guess the deeper I got into um, Hans Zimmer, I'm a huge Hans Zimmer fan. Um, not necessarily just in terms of his music, but all of the other things in terms of his work ethic and attitude and his the way that he's leveraged uh synergy a laboratory environment and teamwork and technology um mm -hmm. so i'm an avid reader of sound on sound and i remember maybe about 10 years ago reading an article about hans um doing his new private sample library for or revising his private sample library connection collection for pirates of the caribbean 3 and all of the things that he went through to get this collection of samples that would only belong to him and be used by him and a handful of other composers. And that's something I found really, really inspiring. Um, but maybe the answer you're looking for is that I ended up in a place called Georgia, which is way, way out East in the former Soviet Union. And I moved there to uh, record orchestras and whatnot in some really amazing Soviet design studios. And that is what eventually led me to dabble in samples. And then, um, I worked for like impact Soundworks and Sony score. And this is not in order by the way, <laughs> and, U and UVI and output. And, um, I, I recorded all the custom samples for dead rising four for sample, uh, for, um, contact, sorry, Capcom, excuse me. Um, and then I had my own company, um, again, not in that order. And so I, I, I managed to get pretty decent at recording and producing sample libraries and also teaching other people how to do that. And uh, the opportunity came up 
to move to Berlin for this job, and it seemed like the right opportunity at the time. So that's how I ended up here. Amazing. So how was it that you ended up in, in Georgia? What, what took you there in the first place? Yeah. Um, well, there was a girl involved, um, one that's <laughs> not in my life anymore, but there were you know, many other women there, and I eventually met my wife from there, so it worked out in that respect. But um, once I was there the first time, uh, I guess nine years ago now, I connected with the director of the opera, the then director of the opera, and I expressed an interest in wanting to record uh, with musicians there for clients around the world. And while it didn't materialize for a couple of years um, from that point, he did show me this really amazing Soviet recording studio that I was just enchanted by, and I knew that I wanted to move there and work there. So it was just an abandoned studio? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't abandoned. There were people around, but there was no work going on. And right. um, there was no, there was like very little gear there. It was, they really had no idea what they were doing at the time. And what kind of stuff were they doing at the time? Well, it's a very funny thing because, um, you know, the next year I had become friends with the engineers there and I asked them how things were going with work. And they said, oh, it's all bad. We don't have any, any jobs. I said, well, why is that? Well, the government changed. And I said, what? What are you talking about? What does that have to do with what does that have to do with recording orchestras? Well, you know, the government, the previous government, they they gave us a lot of orders, you know, to record orchestras and the government changed and they're not doing that anymore. And I said, Okay. Wow. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean, so once that happened and they didn't have the um you know, the kind of the captive market there, um from you know orders from the government they weren't really equipped to do to do their own marketing and that's kind of where i stepped in and i was able to bring projects there through my own networks and um get things going so when you started there did you go in the, with the mindset of you knew you wanted to do sampling so you were looking to to find things to sample or were you there with a, with a case if you just wanted to make the studio work and sampling kind of came about through that yeah, sampling was kind of at the back of my mind. It was something I was interested in, but, um, you know, it, I was probably more interested in just recording generally. But I think my first opportunity to sampling did come pretty early on there. I recorded a piano for 8DO um, in like 2011, I think, or 2012 when I moved there. Um, and I also had the idea to do something that would have been similar to action strings, which Sonuscore did and made them a lot of money. I was actually <laughs> just joking with them about that uh, the other week because I'm, I, you know, I've worked with them and we still have a relationship. And I said, you know, if I had only done that, that library, but I had a group of about 12 composers together and we were going to fund it ourselves and do it ourselves. But we ended up, it just, it just fell through at the last minute. Um, so... So yeah, I mean, I didn't exactly go in with the idea that I would do some sampling. I was just really enthusiastic enthusiastic to record in that space. Amazing. And I mean, lots of people now are um, trying to create their own sample libraries, doing their own sound design, which is great. Do you see your, uh, I mean, obviously your um, your career path or your life path is is, is very is unique. But do you think kind of a, li a lifestyle of working in the sample library industry is something that people can really go after? Or is it still sort of very niche and very, sort of, very few and far between in terms of like work and jobs and things like that? Well, what I've learned about samples is that there are not that many people who are really good at 
doing samples. What I mean is there aren't, there are not that many people who have the cross section of skills and experience that I have. And that's something that I came to appreciate during my interview process here and also meeting colleagues. Um, so that being said, if you can get really good at it and you know, you're reasonably reliable, um, and easy to work with and you, and, and if you can script, which I can't, that's like my Achilles heel. And that's a deliberate, um, decision I've made to not become a scripter because I want to be a musician first. And, um, so back to the point, um, <laughs> what I would say about getting into samples is if you're going to get into samples, I wouldn't recommend somebody get into samples if they want to be a composer or a musician, because it, the problem is that if you get really good at samples, it's kind of hard to get out unless you have other things going on. Now I'm biased because, um, my getting deeper into samples happened to, ha um, coincide with a time in my life where, um, due to, you know, actions of my own, um, for which I am responsible, the composing work was starting to die out. And so there was this, you know, years long period where it was just samples and samples and samples and samples and samples, which is, <laughs> which is great. You know, it's, it's great to be appreciated and it's great to get paid to do something related to audio. But, um, I've heard it described by some people as just the, just, just thinking of a sampling session just feels like kind of soul sucking. So you have to be, <laughs> um, and there, there definitely have been sessions where, I was reevaluating my life decisions, you know what I mean? And <laughs> thinking of where I went wrong. Um, and that's not to say that I haven't enjoyed it generally, but um, actually being there and attending the sessions and, and just kind of um, carving through those thousands and thousands of samples, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of samples that I've edited at this point. Um, it's just a grind. So, and it's not a creative grind, like just train <laughs> out cue after cue. I mean, that's a, that's a different, Thing, but it is it is skilled work, and I think there are aspects of it that do end up um, imparting one with the skill set to be a better musician and producer, which we can talk about a little bit later. Yeah, totally. That's uh, yeah. I mean, your um, file management systems and and uh, lab labeling must just be unreal. <laughs> well, I, I'm not naturally good at that, but I learned some conventions that that keep me to be to keep me, um, honest. Yeah. You, you mentioned something you said about, um, if people are interested in composing, then they, sh they shouldn't really be, be following a sampling route, but do you think that composers <laughs> yeah. should do their own sampling or should they rely on samples made by others? Um, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I would say don't get into sampling unless you have a clear exit strategy. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of composers get into samples I'm sorry. What I want to say is I haven't seen a lot of people transition from samples to music. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, um, I know that Will Bedford, who was who worked with me on like my very first library and did some stuff for Cine Samples, I know that he is getting back into composing. And I think the guys at Cine Samples, who I don't know personally, I think they're composing more. So you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but as to whether or not composers should sample generally, I'm going to challenge something that Christian Henson said. And I think one of the very first videos on his channel, um, which I'm a big fan of his channel, by the way, I like Christian Henson a lot and I love Spitfire. Mm -hmm. um, but um, he said, you know, the very first thing that any musician should get is a microphone. 
um, I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous <laughs> because, um, and, and, his, and, and the implication is that, you know, you get a microphone so that you can record the world around you. You can roll your own sounds. Um, no, the first purchase needs to be samples. You need sample libraries and you need very good sample libraries because these days the standard is so high for production quality that you can't, as you Brits would say, faff about with <laughs> these kind of quirky, you know, untuned, very raw samples. Now, that being said, once you've gotten your, um, once you've gotten your complement of, you know, decent orchestral samples or samples that cover whatever genres that you plan to record in, you know, it does make sense to get a mic, but the caveat of having a mic is, well, what's the value of a microphone if you don't have myriad sources to record, right? Mm -hmm. If yeah. you don't play mini instruments or you don't have friends that you can bribe or musicians that you can pay, well, what are you really going to do with that mic? You know what I mean? So I think it's kind of a loaded idea. Um, and I, I appreciate the spirit of it because the spirit of it is saying that every composer should, um, take ownership of their sound palette. Every composer should be out there capturing sounds that inspire them, that they can, um, use to create their own voice. And that is something that I do generally agree with. But if you need to follow my path and just spend like five years, basically getting a, a PhD in sampling, I don't know that you need to do that. <laughs> Sure. I mean, yeah, there's a, there is a big kind of growing trend, particularly the last, I'd say, five years of, of composers really building that sound palettes from stuff they've recorded. But it yeah. is always, or tends to, tends to be in conjunction with either live recorded instruments or very well sampled instruments as well. Right. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, talking to you, there's, there's so many roads we could go down when, when we talk, because obviously there's a sample library route, but you've also... Um, done a lot in terms of um, orchestral prep, recording, mixing, and you've worked as a composer as well. So, so I guess we'll just touch on touch on a few a few of those things. But the sure. um, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your work with in terms of orchestral prep, recording, and mixing as well? Um, yeah, so that came about with my move to Georgia and my interest in orchestral recording. So eventually, um, I was doing some remote sessions for people and I wasn't really confident with the abilities of the engineers there. And while, I mean, I had some engineering experience, I had recorded bands and I'd um, recorded some rather, you know, well-known artists working in, in different studios and working with my father and uncle who are songwriters in Los Angeles. I had never tackled anything like an orchestra. Um, so I did lots of research and uh, the person I went to, of course, was Alan Meyerson, because I'm such a huge Hans Zimmer fan <laughs> and I'm, I'm really into that sound. Um, but it also so happens that Alan Meyerson is one of the most, um, he's one of the most generous with his knowledge. So mm -hmm. he's, you know, his techniques are kind of well documented out there in interviews and um, magazine articles, um, I guess, you know, partially because of his reputation and his association with Hans. So, um, I got into all of that stuff and I got every resource that I could about how things are mic'd and how they're set up. And, um, I just got to experiment for, you know, over a hundred sessions and, and that, you know, that helped me to develop my, um, skills as a recordist for orchestra, and, um, in terms of the prep and everything like that, that also came through like interviewing other orchestrators and, and talking to friends who worked as assistants and things like that. Um, so I was kind of, and then also trying trial and error, re realizing that, oh, there's this 
thing didn't work the last time on that session. There, there has to be a, a better way to do it and just kind of learning. And even from clients too, because I had some clients that had recorded extensively in other places. And so I would, I would learn from them as well. So it was kind of like, like, uh, you know, paid practice, so Great. to speak. Great. I mean, obviously a lot of, um, the people who listen to this show are, are composers. So if they ever take the step to being able to record with orchestral players, it's likely to have, you know, they'll have a recording engineer included in, in whatever setup they have, but yeah. what a situation they are likely to be in is, you know, as a beginner composer, one of the, one of the great routes of getting, um, live instrumentalist on your track is, is kind of favors for each other. So approaching like local True. universities and things like that. So they could be, you know, recording, you know, a group of local students in, in, in a less than ideal studio. What, what kind of typical setup would you recommend for someone just to get a good recording of maybe like, let's say 10 players in a, in a small studio? Well, if you're going to capture 10 players playing together in a room, um, I would assume that you want to also capture the sound of a room because that's already a number of players where they're creating a, you know, an ensemble sound. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's not, that's a significant sound, right? 10 or eight musicians or more, I don't know, even more than three is, a, yeah. is starting to get up there. Um, so in general, like you want a couple of things, you want to have a good room mic array. Now the typical setup for doing an orchestra or a full string section is the DECA, um, array. And that's three, um, you know, three Omni mics that are up about what, three meters above the three to four meters above the head of the conductor. And they're in like this T kind of shape. Um, but you know, that can be very expensive because the standard mic for that is an, you know, like an M150 or M50, <laughs> which is like a 5,000 pound mic. Times so you're talking three. about, yeah, right. So you're talking about $15,000 worth of microphones hanging, you know, 15 feet above your head or 12 feet above your head. Um, I have substituted those with other mics. So you can, you can use like, let's say that somebody let's, let's talk about worst case scenario, right? Um, let's talk about gorilla style and then we'll talk about the, the high end <laughs> later because the gorilla style is what's more likely to be the case. Now, if you go to your average studio, um, in whatever city you you're in, unless it's LA or, you know, Vienna or Berlin or something like that, or London, they probably won't have M one fifties. I mean, they might, so any high quality omni microphone, um, large diaphragm condenser will do. Um, if it's a tube, great, because tubes are kind of the sound, but you can get by with U87s, which are not cheap, but they're not, you know, they're not $5,000. Um, I've done um, room arrays with uh, 414s, not ideal, but they're ubiquitous. You can find them anywhere. Um, I've done them with my Astons and now that I actually have it in front of me, it's the spirit. So the Aston spirit, I think is around 400 pounds. Um, it's a U87 type mic with, um, with three patterns and it has a transformer. I have a B tested these microphones and even use them on many projects alongside actual U87s and M M150s and they absolutely hold their own so i can personally vouch for the quality of the aston spirit they're great microphones last time um, we spoke you said that if there was one microphone you you would recommend someone getting for versatility yeah. for doing stuff with it's that aston spirit so yeah it's a great mic and they, and they have a couple others now um as well um so yeah you, you've got to get your your um room 
situation sorted. If you don't have three mics, you can use two. Um, and then next is the close mics. So for violins, any type of um, low noise, um, small diaphragm condenser will do. Um, from posh to le less, least posh, I would go, you know, the DPA 4011 or the 4006. I always get those mixed up. Um, those are around an $1,800 mic. Um, they're not your average small diaphragm condenser <laughs> because they have, they have really significant bass extension on them. And on the strings, that ends up sounding just very, very smooth. Um, if you can't get your hands on one of those, so um, then the KM184 is the classic. Um, that one's about half the price. It doesn't sound great on anything, but it sounds good on everything. <laughs> um, is, is what I like to say about it. It's very utilitarian. <laughs> um, in there, there's also the Schups CM5, mm -hmm. um, which is around the same price as the DPA. So that's another stratosphere. And then below the, the, um, the KM 184s would just be, you know, the off brand, like the warm audios W884s, I think. And, um, like Aston has their, um, what are they called? Not the stealth, but the, um, I don't, I can't remember. Oh, the starlight. And they have lasers on them, which is <laughs> super cool. Um, there's now there's a practical reason for the lasers. It's it's meant for being able to re reproduce specific setups. Yeah. Um, you know, over a period of time, which can actually be very useful for sampling, by the way, because you want to make sure that you have the positioning exact. Oh yeah, um, of course. Yeah, but those Aston Starlights, uh, uh, I'm told, are very good. I haven't bought a pair yet, but um, yeah. So I mean, so you're talking about mics from around. Four to six hundred dollars each, going up to eighteen hundred dollars each, and those will cover violins or violas. And typically, you know, you want, I guess, for every two stands of violins, you probably have a mic. Sure. Um, so, like, if you were doing a violin one section, let's assume it was a full section, then you'd you'd have two mics on the violin one section. You'd have two mics on the violin two section. You'd have two mics on the viola section. So you just scale back based on whatever your setup is. So that's like um, two mics for about eight players, basically one mic for every four players. Right. I mean, but if you had eight players, I would assume that it's like two, 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 and two. So you might just have one yeah. mic for every, for every um, group of musicians. Um, for cellos, you go for um, a large diaphragm, like a tube. If obviously you four seven, if you can get access to one. If you can't, uh, any kind of a ribbon mic, um, like the R Royer um, R one twenty two or the Coles. Better yet, the Coles British forty thirty eight. That is one of my absolute favorite microphones, either for bass or cello. Um, but if I have if I don't have enough to go around, they're going to go on the cellos. Um, <laughs> basses, you know, it's about, you know, the same thing. U47, like a, a large tube mic. Um, again, if you can't get those, go for like something like the Stam Audio. Stam make really great um, kind of, I don't want to say knockoffs because that's kind of, um, it's not very nice, but they make great mics that are derived from the designs of those original <laughs> classics. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd say if you, if you have a handful of, you need omnis for the room, you need mm -hmm. some small diaphragm condensers for your high strings and you need either large diaphragm condensers or ribbons or tubes for your, um, your lower strings. 
Sure. And would you do any kind of any surround miking or ambient miking or anything else like that too? I mean, probably not for 10 musicians, but if, <laughs> if you were going to do that, then yeah, you would, you would just extend the initial DECA array of the three Omnis to the first thing, the, the next thing that you would do is you'd include two wider um, Omni mics that are on the same axis as the left and right mics. And then if you're, and depending on the room that you're in, you might, you know, you might put some even behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you're doing 10 players, my guess is that you probably are not going for like a super massive sound. And there are, there are ways of, you know, faking that with, um, various plugins and whatnot too, to an, to an extent. Great. I mean, even just hearing you explain the set out, set up and the layout of it, it's going to be so useful for people to kind of know what the little knobs and faders do in their sample libraries too, because they've all got, mm. they're all labeled close mic, tree mic, surround mic. So that's really, really great. Right. What I'd really like to talk about as well is if this is something we spent some time talking about on attempt one at the interview <laughs> okay. was uh, your process when it comes to um, actually creating, you know, being creative, creating a film score and things like that. So could you talk, talk about, uh, yeah, the, the, your workflow when it comes to composing, when you, when you start to work on a, on a film project? Yes. Um, that's a great question. Uh, let me try to answer that better than I did last time. <laughs> So the process is, it depends on how long you have to do it, whether or not you're getting, you know, budget for musicians and various things like that. And it, you know, to an extent, it, it also depends on what the director wants. I mean, a a lot of the time composers go into a a project or they go into all of their projects with a very specific idea of what they want to do because they have something to prove. Um, (laughs) And... You know, it turns out that sometimes that's not what's needed. So um, I like to think of myself as an orchestral composer, but when I think about it, the last film that I did wasn't really an orchestral score. Um, Parts of it were. Um, I had a string quartet and I had some solo violins and things like that. And it was still very melodic, but it wasn't an orchestral score. There There was some rock cues or there was a rock cue. There was a lot of sound design cues. There were some solo piano cues. Um, the first step is always the spotting it, right? Figuring mm-hmm. out where the music goes and why. Um, but coming up with that first main theme, if it's going to be something that lends itself to a theme, which I hope it does, um, otherwise they're working with the wrong person. I mean, I, it's <laughs> not that I, not that I can't write athematically, I can, but, um, that is the process that I enjoy. I very much enjoy working with melodies. So Um, I think what I mentioned last time is that I might spend um, a large amount of my time just trying to get the first theme ready. And then I feel like once I've got that theme, the the whole thing is almost written because it kind of writes itself. Um, Because uh, so like on the, on the last one that I did, the last feature that I did, um, you know, I, I spent some time getting the theme right, but once I got the right theme, I, I knew, okay, yeah, this is it. This is, um, this is the nucleus for the, the the film, and I brought the director in. And I just played him the theme, um, very simply, and he really liked it a lot. And you know that became the kernel for a bunch of other themes. I mean, I had some other themes that were like lesser, but that particular theme was presented in the film in different ways, probably about ten or twelve times. Because the thing is, if you have a really, um melodically and harmonically rich theme, then you have 
you can take the smallest of chunks from it and create entire cues. You can take two or three notes or just the rhythmic design of the theme and you can extract it and you can expand upon it. Um, and, and this is something that symphonic composers and opera composers have been doing for you know hundreds of years. So it's, mm -hmm. it's nothing new, but um, I think that's the value in taking the time initially to make sure that you have good raw material to work from. And when you present that theme to the director, is it purely a melody that you're presenting or do you, do you develop it out a bit, add orchestration, add a harmony, or is it, do you present just the clear melody? So I think by the time the director heard it on the last film that I worked on, I had given it to, I think I was done with it. I gave it to my assistant at the time. I had an assistant, a couple of assistants from the conservatory and I told him what to do with it because this was also me teaching him like it wasn't me just being lazy it was kind of me <laughs> wanting to see you know if he could deal with it and um we came up with the, this two and a half minute kind of summary you know sure. i mean it's i mean you, you hear about this thing called the mini suite which is usually a lot longer than two minutes it's usually <laughs> like 20 minutes but but for me the two and a half minute tune was enough and mm -hmm. and that's what we played for them and then he liked it and we just went to work from there Great. So by theme, you, you, yeah, you kind of mean an overture for the, for the film, as opposed to just like a short melody. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, there were even within that two minutes, there were even some minor variations on the melody because you yeah. don't, I don't, I don't really know that you can write a two minute long melody. That's kind of a long <laughs> yeah. melody. But you did, I, I, you posted a video on, um, on Facebook a, a while back of, of a little Moleskin, a Moleskin notebook that you were carrying around just to kind of capture little melodic ideas and get creative juices flowing. Yes. What was the thought process behind that? What was the kind of system you went through for, for creating those ideas? Um, well, that was a rehabilitation tool, to be honest. Um, I had, I got that when I just moved to Berlin in the summer mm -hmm. and I really had not been writing a little, very much at all. Like I had that film that I told you about, which was, I think, last year. Or it's no, not even last year. It was two years ago now. And I had a commission for the uh, from the um, U.S. Embassy, which was um, performed in Georgia and in England. Um, those were my only, you know, long form long form works that I had done, like in five years. I have I was mm -hmm. basically just doing samples and things <laughs> like that. So, um, yet I had these goals of composing and i said well you know if you're going to be a composer you should probably write some music and so that was the moleskin was a way of having a place to capture ideas without really having a lot of pressure mm -hmm. and because anything ideas in something like that and if listeners don't know what a moleskin is essentially it's just a very small notebook with music paper now Moleskin makes mostly notebooks with lined paper, but they do have a model that has music paper in it. And so I bought one of these and I just started scribbling in them. And the goal would be to write, you know, eight bars and then write 16 bars. And then I would give myself time challenges. Like how much can I write in 10 minutes or 20 minutes? Or, you know, if I had more time, um, I would just keep writing until I didn't want to write anymore. And so I found that doing that over time slowly helped me to like redevelop my intuition for melodic writing. And it taught me a lot of things about how I approach music. 
as well. Great. Did you set yourself, um, were you doing it like the same time every day, like challenge like that? Or was it just, did you, did you, did you just fill it as, as you could and whenever you could? Yeah, no, no, the latter, because I don't, I don't have that stable of a schedule even now. Sure. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm still working on that. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of like, it, it was a way of eliminating any excuses. And the, um, the hack that I found that really changed everything for me was, it was all, for me, it was all about eliminating the excuse that, um, I don't have time to write. So mm-hmm. one thing I found myself doing was, um, I have this little piano app, like many of us probably do on, on my phone. I have my earbuds, my wireless earbuds. And I said, well, look, why not just write some music right now? <laughs> so, um, you know, I found myself at times just sitting in a cafe or, or anywhere and just open up the piano um, app on the phone and through a combination of just kind of uh, shit, uh, you know, finger playing like one finger at a time and solfeggio and, you know, this notebook, you, you know, I, I was able to get a lot of work done. I could get entire themes um, done in it was like freedom. I didn't have to be set up with a computer somewhere. I didn't have to have all of my sample libraries plugged in. I didn't have to have a guitar. I didn't have to be in complete quiet. I just, all I needed was my phone in a relatively quiet place. And even not that quiet because if you have earbuds, they're right in your ears. Um, and I found that to be really, really liberating um, for me um, and really useful in helping me to reestablish my, uh, my writing habits. That's really great. Like simplifying it down. Yeah. I'm just picturing as well, if you had, if your earbuds died and without you realizing it, you'd just be in like a cafe blasting out uh, <laughs> melodies on your thing. No, Actually, not I, yet. I have a friend who works as a, as a music, music editor and um, he was talking to one of the, one of the big name composers who said they were off to, um, to France and he was going to carry on finishing some composing there. And my friend kind of said, oh, have you got a sort of a setup over there as well? He said, no, just a piano. And that's, he yeah. just goes back to that and just does it, you know, purely from a less technical perspective and it really opens things up to him. Yeah. And, and that's something I wanted to say too, is that, um, I guess I'm kind of lucky in the sense that I tend to, I tend to lean towards melodies. Um, if I didn't, then that process would be much more difficult because, you know, I'm not a pianist. I, I'm a very, very bad pianist in fact. Um, and so that limitation of not being able to have like muscle memory and do all of these complex harmonies, um, is kind of a strength in, in the sense that, um, I don't need a piano to mm-hmm. write. I can think just kind of one line at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's capturing things in your head rather than following where your fingers are going. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I, the guitar is my instrument. I played all my life and I, I just can't write on the guitar because it just yeah. becomes my fingers doing whatever the hell they want. And that's for me, that's not a way to make music. Yeah. Cause yeah, you'll always you tend, people tend to compose within their uh, playing limits when they're actually with an instrument as opposed to thinking about what, what else could be done. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, the next question I'm going to ask is, is going to probably confuse people having you just talked about kind of taking things back and, and, and uh, notating things out by hand and, and, and thinking in that type of way. Because the last time we spoke, you talked about this fascinating way of, of using the studio as a creative tool about when you have okay. your theme kind of going in and, and yeah. seeing where it goes. Can you tell us about that? Oh, about production. Yeah. I think, I think what you're referring to is, is, um, collaboration and producing and coaxing, um, 
performances from musicians. Is that right? Definitely. Yeah. 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 So the more tools that you have available to you as a musician to make music, the better. Um, one of the ones that I was able to develop when doing sample libraries and working with, um, you know, these remote recording sessions was just producing musicians. Um, and so what I mean by that is being able to go into a studio with the musician, having maybe not everything written down. So this is not a session where like, I'm just giving somebody some sheet music and I'm saying, Hey, play that. Cause that's pretty easy. Like the instructions are there. It's pretty hard to, to mess it up. Um, I mean, obviously you can be objective with things like, um, articulation and, um, tempo and, you know, things like that. I tend to not be as picky because I most mostly trust the musicians to, you know, give life to the written notes. Obviously, if I don't like something, I'll tell them that. But the thing that I, I found valuable was um, the other side of recording, which is going into the studio with only a couple of notes or a rough idea, or maybe you have a very concrete idea of what you want to end up with, but you don't know how you want to get there. Um, going in with just a couple of themes and just having the musicians jam on them. And if you're working with really great improvisers, then it's, it's, you know, easy, but, um, I found myself doing this with people who weren't, you know, particularly adept at improvisation or they weren't used to improvisation. And, um, I have found that process of going in the studio and, um, just kind of collaborating with the musician on trying to get these, you know, neither one of us know what we're going to get. It's a very exciting thing to be able to do. And I found, um, myself just getting things that I wouldn't come up with by myself. And, um, so that's something I really encourage people to do too, is to find ways of getting people in a room because you're getting access to somebody else's life experiences and somebody else's perspectives. And, um, it's always going to result unless you're a complete control freak and you just end up <laughs> telling them what not to do the entire time. You're always going to end up with something that's going to be unexpected. And usually it's for the better. And have you used this approach on, on film scores or on sample library creation? Yes. All of, all of those. Um, the symphonic shadows by eight Dio, which was originally scream one, two, three, and four by private labs, which was my company. That was all improv improvisatory. Um, I think for those sessions, I think I had like some master sheet that I had written by hand of some, you know, clusters and voicings. And I had some, it was like maybe one or two sheets of paper. And so the musicians didn't see anything. They were just getting instructions from me. And, uh, I would, they would, they might do something that would be an accident. I say, Oh no, do that again. And then we'd get really into it. We'd, we'd spend like five or 10 minutes diving really deep into that, like one mistake. Um, and so, yeah, all of the aleatoric libraries that I've done, um, are full of that cases case a little bit less, which is cases a library I did for ATO. Um, that was meant to be basically a copy of cage, a smaller version of that, but for the aspects of it where we couldn't match it there, we did take that approach as well. And then I did lots of, uh, loops and whatnot for output for arcade before I joined native instruments. And that was completely me in the studio with, with some really great musicians and just, um, getting them to, um, 
to to dig deep and and pull out performances um, that I knew were gonna be useful to people. Um, in terms of film scores, uh, only on my last film did I get an opportunity to do that, and only on my last film was I comfortable doing that. But yes, we had a session with a bassist, and he played electric and acoustic bass, and I had a session with a violinist, an electric violinist. And I think I just had like this huge template of different grooves that I had taken from different sample libraries and I gave them that to play off of, but we came up with all of these melodic loops and whatnot uh, over these eight hours of recording. And then that went to my assistants who did lots of sound design and I did some sound design. And then we went back and we edited those things and those ended up being like multiple cues throughout the film. And did you go in with the kind of list of like moods or emotions you needed to come out of that session with, or did you purely see where the session goes knowing that you could create those moods afterwards? Um, no, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, no, I don't think I knew what I was going to get. I just knew that I kind of knew the tempos roughly and I knew the types of grooves that I wanted. And therefore I knew that if we did something like that, then I didn't, I'd end up with material that was really inspiring. So it was all about, keeping myself inspired mm -hmm. throughout the process. And as long as I was there, I knew I was going to end up with things that could be useful, even though I didn't know at that time how they were going to be used. Such a fascinating approach, which, you know, must take so much confidence to do, but also a knowledge that you're, you're going to come out at the end with, with something great is, is amazing. But I know a lot of composers would be terrified of the thought of going into a session kind of without it all prepared down to a T. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Part of, part of that is, is also, um, you know, just being too stupid to, <laughs> to know that, that I should be scared. Right. Um, I mean, there's, there's times where I should have been, or could have been more prepared for something. And so it came down to doing that. Um, and I think it also helps that if you, if you've done that process with 20 or 60 musicians, then it's, you know, you're not going to blink an eye at doing it with one or two musicians. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, Amazing. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do it the other way where I started with one and I went to twenty. I did twenty and I went, I went the other way. So, so it definitely took the pressure off. Yeah, nice. Okay, let's wrap things up. What would be your one piece of advice for someone hoping to get started in in, in the film scoring world? My one piece of advice. Um, I'll repeat what I said last time. Um, <laughs> once you get a, once you get a job, do a great job so good of a job that every that that person wants to tell all of their friends and i think that's pretty much the key to everything great well thank you so much once again for being on the show for a second time <laughs> i really really appreciate you coming back on oh no problem i'm great. glad we got to record it through this um superior mic this time <laughs> yeah yeah awesome okay thanks a lot today take care see you johnny bye <laughs>